Wasn't that beautiful? Well, this morning's message is entitled Sovereign or Silent. Sovereign or Silent. And we're continuing uh, the series, if you recall, uh, entitled The Whole Truth. The Whole Truth. The Bible often presents uh, truths, twin truths that appear at times, if, we, if we're just scratching the surface, appear at times to be contradictory or at odds with each other, but in fact are, are complementary to each other. It's the whole truth package, and so we want to talk about the sovereignty of God and the silence of God here this morning. Now, I want to share with you a story. It's very personal. I was just sharing with Jen last night that uh, this is a difficult uh, little story to share with you because it, uh, it, it had a tremendous impact on Jen and myself, uh, but it was 18 years ago. The year was 1997. Can you believe 18 years ago? Wow, 1997. I was driving to Quebec, Canada. Uh, to renew my American visa so I could extend my stay in this great country after having just uh, recently completed my studies. Now, all the way up into Canada and back down again to the U.S. border, I was enjoying the companionship of songs that I had, uh, my, some of my favorite songs that I had recorded on a tape. Now, uh, that was 1997, and I had a 1987 Honda Civic that didn't have a CD player, and so I was resorting to tapes. I was singing, and uh, with my heart, I was just thanking God for having delivered me from, uh, from, from formal education that I just recently graduated from, uh, for leading me potentially to, uh, to a, uh, my first professional ministry assignment, and for the budding relationship that I was enjoying with one Jennifer Lisa, um, who then became and is buttering. God had guided me. He had blessed me, and I was so happy because I knew that God had everything worked out. When I was casually, when I casually pulled up to the U.S. border, anticipating to head back to Massachusetts, where I was at the time, a fairly irritated immigration officer met me. He asked me to show him my passport, and then he began asking a litany of questions. And it became very apparent very quickly that he didn't like any of my answers, and they were truthful, I, I will assure you. His questions turned into an interrogation, and he soon asked me to step out of and away from my car that I was driving. Now, before I knew it, I had, he had scoured my car looking for something to incriminate me with. He interrog his interrogation turned into fits of anger, and he marched me into his immigration or into the immigration office. Now, I didn't know what was wrong, but I was certainly being made to feel guilty. Apparently, according to this man, I had committed a litany of errors because in between his harsh and cruel words, he was typing feverishly something on the computer, entering some data into his system. I asked to know what was wrong and what he had written, but I was never told. The whole episode was a complete mystery. His incessant yelling at me eventually led me to ask for the supervisor, hoping he or she would be able to calm things down just a little bit. 
While the supervisor didn't uh, give me a hard time, he did nothing to rein in his officer's vehemence. His words were like fists that just kept hitting me each time he opened his mouth. It became quite obvious at that, at, during this time that I was not going to be let back into the United States. Now, what seemed like an eternity, I, uh, I was eventually ushered out of the office to my car and I was told to drive north back to the Canadian border. Now, when I arrived there a few moments later, they saw in my passport that I had not been there too long before. And so instead of letting me into their country, they escorted me out of my car into their immigration office where I was questioned again. Now, Canadians tend to be a gentler people, but uh, while they didn't treat me as an alien, they couldn't figure out why I had been sent back and I certainly couldn't tell them why either. Eventually, they let me go. They gave me a three-week visa to sort my problems out and uh, told me, if you can't solve it, you've got to leave the country. And so I was in Quebec, Canada. All I had on me was my car, the car I was driving, rather, the clothes that were on my back, the tapes in my car, and a little money in my bank account that I uh, had collected while uh, sharing Christian literature while in college. Now, if you know anything about Quebec, it's, a French, it's the French-speaking province of Canada. And if you know me, second languages aren't my strength. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what, who I should talk to. So I found the closest town with a hotel, and I headed in that direction. I uh, found a payphone and uh, called Jennifer. She was in Virginia at the time, and I told her what had happened, and we were both extremely heartbroken. We didn't know what, when we would see each other again, quite frankly. Fortunately, I knew someone near Montreal, and I asked if I could stay with them just a few days until I can get this thing worked out, and uh, they let me come, they let me stay. I headed over to the, got an appointment, headed over to the immigration office of the U.S. Uh, consulate there in Montreal, Canada, Quebec, Canada, and uh, there I presented my case, and they didn't want to deal with my case whatsoever. I was eventually told that I needed to come back uh, a little bit later, and uh, I went back and forward between uh, the U.S. Embassy there, and eventually they told me that I, they couldn't deal with my problem here. I had to go back to Australia, where I had to deal with it there. Now, Australia, I thought, well, that's a, that's a beautiful-sounding country, but at that time, I didn't want to go back to Australia. I didn't have intentions to go back, at least not this soon. How was I going to get back to Australia? I didn't have the money for a ticket. So I sold the car that I had to buy an air ticket, and I was homeward bound. My sister, living in Melbourne, put me up. I had $50 in my pocket. I immediately set up an appointment at the U.S. consulate. I was told, after going in there to meet with them, that I would have to wait another year before they would even consider and talk about my case. It was like a bad dream. From praising God and thanking God for leading my life, knowing that he's got everything in the palm of his hand, he had it all under control, to these moments of bitter, bitter disappointment. I can't say that I didn't doubt his presence in my life during those moments, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that during these, this episode, I even questioned God's involvement in my life. Why didn't he prevent the incident? After going through college and, and sweating bullets at times to try to pay my way through and working hard and feeling as though God had certainly led and opening up opportunities. How is it, why was it possible that the, my fate was left into the hands of one man who got out of bed on the wrong side of bed that morning? Is it possible? Didn't God care that people weren't telling the truth? Was he causing, in fact, the problem? Maybe he was causing it so my faith could be tested. Isn't it, isn't it funny that we question God's involvement in our life when things go bad, when things go bad but when things are going swimmingly, there's no doubt in the world that God is with us. Now, my situation wasn't, and uh, which was painful rather for the moment, isn't really that big when we consider what others in this world go through. Just think for a moment about the Syrian refugees and immigrants right now. But such incidences and such questions are among the most complex and the most difficult that we face. Is God an active or is He a passive God? Uh, similar yet broader questions are asked about God. Does God intervene in our world or does He kind of take a hands-off policy where we're left to ourselves? How is God responsible or how much is God responsible for 
what happens in our world. Does He act directly or indirectly? In fact, is God sovereign or is He, in fact, silent? Now, people in general usually hold one of two positions on this subject. Either they believe God is in control and He manipulates events to punish or to bless people, or they believe that God created the world, He wound it up like a clock, and then He set it off and left it to itself while He went off and took care of some other business. The latter view uh, was a popular theory uh, in the 19th century, and it was called deism. And although not many Christians consciously held to deism, many live their lives as if God is not really involved in their world, in their lives. Clearly, deism cannot be squared with the Bible at all, but as it turns out, the first view is equally deficient. As long as life is going reasonably well, we can maintain a simplistic view of the... We cannot maintain a... Well, rather, we can maintain a simplistic view of the universe. When things are going well, swimmingly, everything's lining up just nicely. But when events shatter our naivety, then we are often left what we feel like with nothing. Fourteen years ago, yesterday, nearly 3,000 lives were lost in a senseless terror attack here on American soil, and many and some are still reeling from that event. How could God allow that to happen? How could God allow little Aylan Kurdi, Aylan Kurdi, a three-year-old Syrian toddler, to come to the end of his life face down in the sand of a Turkish beach? His lifeless body had been washed ashore after the boat his father was manning had been capsized. He and his family had fled from Syria, where civil war had broken out. Can a person view life's occurrences as simply blessings and curses? In 1755, and we know this date because we understand it falls in line with the sixth seal of Revelation uh, in, in chapter, uh, chapter 5 and 6, chapter 6, in 1755 there was an earthquake in Lisbon, Portugal, in which 60,000 people were killed. Now, the theological aftershock spread throughout Europe. Some, like Voltaire, he gave up on religion entirely. Theologians had been describing the world at its very best, uh, the best of all possible worlds. And then suddenly, there was nothing but death and there was nothing but destruction all over. How could God cause or allow such an event to take place and still be a loving God. Were the, were the citizens of Lisbon more in need of judgment let's, than, let's say, the citizens of Paris or the citizens of London? Now, reality, of course, is much more complex than we imagine. We sometimes take only pieces of the Bible to placate our own thinking. To try to understand God's activity in the world uh, is, to, is to grapple with related questions like, does God perform miracles and does God have a plan for every individual and does He lead people according to His divine will? Does He provide for people? Does He protect them? And how we answer these questions determines in a large extent how we live our lives, how we view God and how we live our lives. Now, if you're like me, I like certainty. People do. We like certainty. But the Christian life is not necessarily a life of certainty in some respects. The Bible calls our walk a walk of faith, a walk of faith that is established on clear and wonderful promises in God's Word, which provides certainty. But our walk is a walk of faith, not by sight. Humility, therefore, and caution are required as we analyze the problems not only in the world, but also in our own little worlds. We cannot avoid interpreting events but we must remember that our conclusions are only based upon a partial understanding. If, a, for example, a tornado skips a church and hits a bar, should we conclude that the tornado was sent as a judgment from God? What do we say if the tornado hits the church and skips the bar? That God wants us to build a bigger church? The Bible keeps us from drawing what seems to be an obvious conclusion. At most, Scripture, I shouldn't say at most, but Scripture does provide guidelines, clear guidelines for helping us understand God's actions. And as we accept these six guidelines, I'll say there are six, we'll be prevented from falling prey to a sometimes dangerous naivety and become more discerning and more caring about how God involves Himself in this world, even in our own personal lives. So I'm going to list these for you here. Number one, Number one, 
first guideline God the Bible provides to help us understand God's action in the world and in our lives. Number one, humans, people cannot fully understand God and his actions. That's just a fact. We cannot fully understand God's, uh, all of his actions, fully understand them all. You've heard it said before, perhaps, that a human who tries to understand God is like a gnat trying to understand an archangel. The biblical writers repeatedly describe the gulf between human understanding and God's action. Turn with me back to our scripture reading. If you'd be so kind, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. I want to read this again for us so we understand. We understand that we cannot fully understand, fully fathom all that there is about God and His actions and plans. God is God, and there are times where we must let God be God. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, 55 verses 8 and 9, he says, let, uh, he says, for my thoughts, talking about God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." The impossibility of explaining all of God's actions is also shown in Job chapters 38 to 42 when God ridicules the attempts of Job's friends to explain Job's suffering. After wrestling with Israel's failure to believe Christ, Paul concludes with words of praise marveling at how unsearchable are God's judgments and how His ways are past finding out. Let's turn over there to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. Uh, rather, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Romans 11, 33 to 36, he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he says, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? And, and Paul here is quoting from Job and Isaiah. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. But just because we cannot always understand God's ways, it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. There are many things in the world we cannot explain, but we still believe in them. So that's point number one, or one of the guidelines the Bible offers us as we're trying to understand God's working in our world and in our lives. We cannot fully understand all of His actions. Number two, God is present and He is active among His people. That's a very clear guideline that the, the Bible outlines for us here. The deist problem, or His position, is wrong. God has not created the world and wound it up like a clock and left it to run on its own. When you go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament testifies to a God that is active and that, that calls and that leads and that empowers people. God is presented as the Lord over all of the history of all peoples. Nations are presented as instruments by which God accomplishes His purposes. For example, when the Assyrians were used to punish the Israelites or when the Persian king Cyrus is raised to deliver God's people. And we go over to the New Testament, the risen Christ declares that I am with you how often? Always, even till the end of the world. You get into the book of Acts, of course, and it emphasizes the activity of God's Spirit in the spreading of the gospel. And then over in Acts chapter 17, you're still in Romans, but come over to Acts 17, we have these, uh, these incredibly encouraging words. And they, they help put things in proper perspective. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 and 28, the Bible says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him, reach out after Him, and might find Him, though He is not far from each of us. He is not, God is not what? He's not far from each of us. Each of us. Look at verse 28. For in Him we what? Live and move and have our being as also some of your own po poets have said, for we are also his offspring. These verses affirm that God is not far from any person, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, you see. Belief in an absent, inactive, or silent God will not do. If God is not in some way related to the events in our lives and is not active to establish a relationship with us, there is no sense or point in speaking about him at all. 
To believe God is to believe in His acts. We would say, we could say that the entire Bible is a record of the acts of God. Events such as the Exodus, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, they're at the center of the biblical message. If God does not act, then the Bible shouldn't be believed. The Bible is a record of God's acts. And so that's the second, second principle in helping us understand how God moves and acts. He is present and He works closely and through and among His people. Number three, the God of the Bible is a hidden God. The God of the Bible is a hidden God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 15. Isaiah 45 verse 15, if God exists, why doesn't He go ahead and prove it? And yet Isaiah describes God as hidden. Isaiah 45, and I want to read here verse 15 for you. Isaiah 45 and verse 15, the prophet says, Truly you are God, you who what? Who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. The God of the Bible is a hidden God. In Exodus 33, 20, God tells Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And in John chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus explains that other than himself, no one has seen the Father. These texts say more than, the, than that God is beyond our understanding. The point is that we do not have direct physical access to God. God rarely attempts to prove himself. He is present with us but as the old, an Old Testament scholar puts it, God is an elusive presence, or can be an elusive presence. He cannot be grasped or held by us. When we think we have Him, He is gone. He doesn't respond in mechanical fashion to our rituals or our problems. He cannot be programmed and He will not be manipulated. Neither He nor His actions fit into the boxes we create for Him. When we act as if we know exactly what He is doing, we basically delude ourselves. So, why does God remain hidden? Why is He the, 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 the hidden God? Well, no doubt one reason is that God's holiness is far too great for sinful human beings to endure. There's no doubt about that. Our God, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. Now, another reason has to do with the fact that for God to have an authentic relationship with His people, there must be freedom. If God were to force Himself on us by overwhelming acts, then we might be compelled into a relationship with Him. But God does not coerce and God does not force. Instead, God invites. God invites. To preserve human freedom, He will even let people choose the opposite of His desires and He will even let them abuse others. And that's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp all of that. But God honors freedom, even a person's freedom to go in the opposite direction of his plans and his desires for them. God does not want us to be automatons, robots wound up to do his pleasure and his desire whenever he dictates, you see. He honors human free will. So God is a hidden God of the Bible. Number four, God is not directly responsible for every event that occurs that we read about in Scripture and in history. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it reports that because of human sin, God was sorry that He had created mankind. He was what? Sorry. God was sorry. God's grief shows us that much of what happens in the world, or what, much of what had happened in the world back then, happens, well, what had happened was not God's doing. When we, when we jump over to the book of Job, Job's friends attributed his sufferings to God's punishment because of Job's sin. But Job and later God will have none of it. Turn with me over to Luke. Jesus wrote something or said rather something very interesting. And Luke records it over here. Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5. There were present at, uh, at that season some who told him, that is Jesus, about Galileans whose blood had been mingled with uh, blood, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. They came to talk to Jesus. They shared this story with Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to them in verse 2, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And what did Jesus say? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Look at verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. 
Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? He said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. So Jesus argues against this kind of straight line interpretation of events, arguing that certain tragedies cannot be viewed as God's personal judgment on sin. Now, saying that God is not directly responsible for every event doesn't remove the problem of sin and evil. Even if God is not directly responsible, He does allow suffering and He does allow evil to take place. But there is a big difference between God's permitting events and His causing events. If God causes evil, He must be held accountable for it. If He permits evil, the responsibility for it is placed on the free will of the person doing that thing. We may question why God values free will so much, but there is no doubt, and there should be no doubt in our minds, that He does. Being human means being responsible for our actions and being subject to the actions of others. Our neighbor, our neighbors, or our neighbor has the free will even to commit murder. And we could well be the victim of his free will. To be human means to be a resident in a world of sin, a sin, our sin and others' sin. Suffering, a world of suffering, a world of tragedy, and a world of death, where these things are commonplace. God created the world, willing to chance what human, human beings would do. God may be responsible for allowing such a world to exist, but He is not directly responsible for all the events that take place. And so that's another guideline, another principle we, we keep in mind as we seek to interpret and understand what God is doing in the world and, and the, the events in our lives. God is not directly responsible for every event that occurs. And then number five, that was number four, number five, there is a war that is raging between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. There is a war that is raging. God gets blamed for a lot of terrible things that happen in our world. But people forget that there is an enemy that delights in disease, destruction, and in death. If you go over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, notice what the apostle wrote over here. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. We probably know it pretty well. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking what, friends? Seeking whom he may devour. There's an enemy in the land, you see. The Bible reveals that, that the war that began in heaven, when Lucifer, that once shining cherubim, who sought to take the, the throne of God, yet didn't succeed and was evicted from heaven, was transferred to planet earth. Or at least he chose to come here to planet earth. Satan, the great adversary of God, claimed rulership of this world when he led his, our first parents uh, to rebel against God's government. And he has wrought havoc here ever since. When somebody asks why God allows things to happen or, what, or that to happen, but if we were to stop and to consider why he doesn't allow a lot more things to happen, we might realize that there is more to God than we originally thought. The fact is we live in enemy territory. We live in a world that is ruled by the devil. He has partial rule because ultimately God, God is sovereign, but God allows him to rule to a certain extent. Instead of asking why God allowed such and such to happen, we might ask, why did God prevent more things from happening? And there we see a bit more of the character of God and His grace and His goodness toward us, you see. While the devil seeks to deceive and while he seeks to destroy, God employs His mercy and His love to win a world back from the grasp of the enemy. Ultimately, this contest will be over and God will be seen to be fair and just. But for now, He allows us to decide which side we will stand on, which banner we will walk under, to whom will we give our allegiance. For now, the earth groans under the weight of sin and things in the natural, economic, economic, political, religious world will con continually, to, continually, gradually unravel as we anticipate the return of Christ as Christ warned us and told us long ago. That's number five. We are in the midst of a battle between Christ and Satan. And lastly, number six, the sixth guideline that helps us understand God's working in the world and in our lives, God usually works in and through people and through the natural order. God usually works in and through people and through the natural order. In the Bible, a lot of 
the activity of God is not performed directly by God, but through some agent. For example, when God dried up the Red Sea, we're told that He did so through what? A strong east wind. He used something He had made and created to achieve His purposes. The healing, uh, Jesus healed a, a blind man with clay, you see. Or He engaged a, the faith of a person uh, who sought healing. Now, this is not an attempt to say how God must act, for He is as free to act as He sees fit at any time and in any place, and He does. Nor is it an attempt to de-emphasize or explain away the miraculous, not at all. There are many events in Scripture that do not take place through the created order, most notably the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. We cannot place God into a box and control His activity, but we do need to realize that He usually acts through creation rather than contrary to it. Acts within the created order are no less an act of God. Now, does this mean we should or could, should, should or should not expect miracles? We should expect miracles, amen? Surely. But let me risk understanding by saying that it is probably unfair to expect the miraculous all the time. On the other hand, we should be aware of the possibility of the miraculous and be open, of course, to, to the way God works, His surprises, the way He wants to work in our lives. Uh, clearly, God, however, God does not normally choose to suspend the creation order. There is an order to life and still God is involved with us and He does that through His created order. Now, this interrelation, these six points, teach us and show us that the interrelation of God and humans is extremely far-reaching. We cannot separate God from the events of our lives. Just cannot. What happens in a person's life may not have been caused by God, but God is involved. He is certainly involved. He shares in our joys, and He also shares in our sufferings. He provides, He instructs, and He calls. The real issue is not so much who caused an event, as it is how our relation with God is shapes or shapes our response to that particular event. And no matter what happens, He is still Lord. God is still sovereign. Now, questions about God's role in our lives tend to come into sharp focus when we face issues of prosperity or and tragedy. Now, most religions attempt to help people escape the plight of the human condition, Sin and fear and poverty and degradation and meaninglessness, a future judgment. Some offer ways to bargain with God. Do these particular things and you'll be forgiven. Wear this thing and you'll be protected. Keep these rules and all will be well. And in a more modern framework, send $100 to send this TV program and God will bless you more than He's ever done before. Hmm. It would be difficult to imagine a religion that did not offer the prospect of a better life for its adherents. Christians are motivated by the same concerns as everybody else. People frequently turn to Christ because of fear and guilt and expect God to make their lives better and to make their lives more meaningful. And there is nothing wrong with these motives or desires. The, the only difficulty in approaching God to make life better is the way we define the word better. The word better and how we expect it to be achieved. Do we expect God to change things so that we don't have to deal with the problems or the problem people that we have to uh, face or encounter? Do we expect some type of insurance policy that prevents tragedy? Are there things we can do or doctrines we can believe that ensure prosperity? Now, the Bible seems to imply that prosperity is the reward of believers and that tragedy is the judgment of God. Old Testament history tells how Israel prospers or languishes politically and economically directly in relationship to whether she was obedient or disobedient. The writers of Deuteronomy and Proverbs repeatedly teach that obedience results in prosperity and that disobedience leads to poverty. You can read, you can read Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28 as an example. Examples abound as well of individuals blessed by God because of their faith. People like Abraham, People like Joseph, people like Daniel and even Job, both before and after his suffering. Examples of judgment on the disobedient are just as plentiful. You've got the sons of Korah, Achan, Absalom, Ahab, and Jezebel. Yet other parts of the Bible 
prevent our drawing any conclusion about prosperity always being God's blessing or tragedy being God's judgment. The Bible is full of people who are prosperous, though they were ungodly and they were cheats. We think of Jacob, at least he was a cheat to begin with. Laban, Zacchaeus, the rich fool in Jesus' story, and the nations of Assyria and Babylon. While the Bible views wealth as a blessing in some contexts, wealth is seen in others as a burden, making it difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, it's easier to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And still other texts denounce the rich. In Amos 6, Luke 6, 24, James 5, 1 through 6, there are also numerous people who are, were righteous and yet they were poor, or the victims of tragedy. Job, there was a gentleman by the name of Naboth, there was Lazarus, there was Mary, there was Paul, and there was even Jesus himself. The psalmist and the prophet Habakkuk often lament that the unrighteous are the ones getting ahead. You remember in Psalms 37, uh, the, the psalmist tells us not to fret because of the, uh, the, the, pros- the prosperity of the wicked. Don't fret, don't worry. And the Psalms frequently are prayers of God's people from re- of rescue from distress. So therefore, with these things in mind, the Bible does not allow us to view prosperity simply as either a, a right of Christians or a reward from God. Neither does it allow us to view tragedy as simply something from which Christians are promised deliverance or as a judgment from God. Now, when tragedy occurs, careful evaluation possibly will lead to some answers as to why the event occurred, but we must be prepared. We must be prepared to live within, with unresolved questions. Look at what Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. This is commonly known as the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. Notice Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly. Now we see through a glass darkly, as the King James says. But then we will what? See face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know just as I also am known. Do we understand everything that takes place around us? Do we understand everything that's happening in our lives right now, right here? The Bible says, Paul wrote, we only see in part. Now we see through a glass dimly, you see. At the same time, however, some tragedy may legitimately be seen as judgment. In fact, sin brings its own judgment. A person who lives a violent life ought to not be surprised to encounter a violent death. Selfishness, deceitfulness lead people, uh, lead into poor relationships. Sin is to be shunned like the plague, therefore, not only because it's wrong, but also because of the hard consequences. Ultimately, Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, is death. So Deuteronomy and Proverbs are right to connect obedience and prosperity. Wise and right living are necessary for a happy life but they do not guarantee a happy life. And we cannot say less than Deuteronomy and Proverbs, but we can say more. When tragedy occurs, and there may be numerous factors that are the cause, we may be the victim of someone else's sin, like uh, the marriage that was destroyed because of the husband's or wife's addiction to pornography, or the child that was born with an incurable disease because of a mother's drug habit, or the young lives that are ruined through the sex trade because of the carnivorous aspirations of greedy men and women. Tragedy may result from ignorance, as when a child climbs a high-voltage wire. It may result from negligence or malice. It may result from a whole society that has gone awry, for example, the Holocaust with the Jews. We live in a world where tragedy occurs for numerous reasons, and one is and one where uh, we are, where it is sometimes within our power, both as individuals and as a society, to prevent some tragedies. In our fallen world, tragedy just happens. Whether the victim is Christian or non-Christian, whether the person is living a holy life or living a life of sin. The important thing for Christians, however, in the midst of tragedy, is not so much that to be able to explain why it is happening, 
but to determine what it means to live and hope and in Christ in the presence of the tragedy. That's, that's the call of a Christian. Look, we shouldn't forget Paul, that Paul and other New Testament writers viewed some suffering even as positive. Yeah, that's right, positive. Some suffering can be the means of identifying with Christ. In Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul said, I, want, I desire to, to know Christ, the power of His resurrection and also His sufferings. That was his desire. It can also be a means of solidarity with the suffering of, with other people. The New Testament teaches that we cannot be followers of Jesus without identifying with suffering. None of us chooses suffering. On the contrary, we run as far away from it as possible. But Christians must know that, uh, that there are borders beyond which we cannot run. Those borders are determined by the cross of Jesus Christ. We think of, for example, an individual that we know well, Nelson Mandela, during South African apartheid. His commitment to right and solidarity with his people would not allow him to seek an easy way out. Now, he had his faults, he had his problems, but he had solidarity with his people. And the same borders are in place for each one of us. We cannot relinquish the truth of God's Word, nor can we go back on people that we have been called to serve and to help. The cross that Christians bear is the suffering they willingly endure in the service of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' farewell discourse, given just before His arrest and death on the cross, He promised His disciples something profound in the midst of pain. I'm reading John 16, verse 33. These things, Jesus said, I've written to you, or I've spoken to you rather, that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What does Jesus offer us in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain? He offers us his peace. He offers us his peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Christians can know peace in the midst of pain because they experience the presence of Christ in their lives and because they have a hope for the future. For this reason, among others, the early Christians even rejoiced about their suffering. And we can sometimes rejoice in the midst of our suffering as well. Now, in both our prosperity and both our tragedy, God is present with us. For in Him, the Bible says, we live and we move and we have our being. But the place where Christians most look, long, uh, look most longingly for God's active involvement is in the area of health. Actually, not just Christians, but people in general. When someone we love, someone we know suffers, we look to God to work a miracle, to deliver us from our ailments. Now, some Christians teach that God will perform a miracle of healing if we only believe enough or, we, or the right person prays for us. Can't have that person pray, we need, need a more holy person. This one right here, you see. And some versions of the formula can be heard on several religious TV shows. One preacher moves down a line of individuals, he touches each person on the head and he says, take whatever you need, take a miracle. Another says, send money as, a seed, as seed faith and God will bless you. And still worse, another tells people not to go to doctors if they're ill, for all they need is faith in Jesus. The result of such teaching is often pain, grief and guilt resulting from fear that we are responsible for our suffering because we lack the faith to be cured. The assumption that Christians ought never be ill is wrong. Are Christians immune from causes of illness? Should righteous Christians never die? To be human is to be physically vulnerable to pain, to injury, to illness, to aging, and even to death if Jesus doesn't come back first. Now, it is true, however, that God wants us to prosper and be in health, even as our souls prosper. John wrote that in one of his little letters, 3 John 2. And it's also true that God has provided guidelines for healthier living. You can read Leviticus 16 and Proverbs 23, and you can even read Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't stress out. Don't stress out. You see, so that when employed, when we, we employ these principles in our lives, the risk of disease is reduced and the quality of life is is, 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 uh, is increased. There's no doubt that God would not choose sickness for His people. There's no doubt about that. But the realities of evil and sickness can be more complex and involved than we initially think. Sickness may and does have many number of causes. There is aging. 
There is environmental factors. There is genetic factors. And who knows what else. Knowing this, however, is not an excuse to eat what you want to eat, to drink what you want to drink, and to live as you please, you understand. God wants us to offer his body, our bodies as a living sacrifice for him. Can God perform miracles? Can God perform miracles? Many Christians, even some of the Protestant, uh, Protestant forefathers, Luther and Calvin, and some of them, have be- they believed, and there are Christians today that believe the miracles stopped happening at the death of the apostles around A.D. 68. But God does not fit into the boxes that we create for Him. He is free to work in any way He sees fit. But it is wrong for us to expect Him to follow some mechanical formula or to simply wave some magic wand to solve our problems. Faith is a significant factor in healing, but it is neither a guarantee nor neither is it a magic potion. God is involved in any healing process as He is involved in all aspects of our lives. When we are ill and we are sick and we cannot get better, we, sh- we should do what the Bible encourages us to do. In James 5.14, call the elders, have them come, let them pray of you, let them anoint you with oil, a symbol of consecration. Pray over them and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Certainly we should take advantage of, of the natural means that God has given to us and medical assistance available. God usually works through secondary means. Our suffering should be shared as well by the church. And if we're restored to health, we should give God thanks and live for His honor and glory. All of us, however, have to deal, unless Jesus comes back first, with the reality of death and the transitory character of life. If we're not restored to health, our only intention can be, like Paul's in Philippians 1, 20-26, to glorify God with both our lives and our deaths. We don't choose death. It comes as an unwanted visitor, resisted to the very last moment. Still, we know that death is not the ultimate reality. Therefore, we can glorify God still even in death. What we have found in Christ is wholeness. The wholeness that we enjoy in this life, however, is partial for the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of all that we are is still yet future. While Jesus has saved us from uh, the, the guilt of sin, and He's saving us from the power of sin, ultimately, He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. And this mortal shall put on immortality, and we shall be changed according to the Scriptures. Even while we are being renewed continually spiritually, however, our bodies today are deteriorating. By God's grace, our bodies... Our bodies come equipped with an astounding healing ability, but they also come with aging mechanisms. The fact that the nature of the world in which we live ensures that illness become, belongs to the human experience. But regardless of this reality, we can enjoy the wholeness that Christ gives and to witness to the wholeness of Christ, even in the midst of death, and even in the midst of suffering. Another question we have to ask is, God, does God assist us and does He guide our lives? Without a question, the teaching of the Bible says that He does, that He absolutely does. But problems emerge when we look for God, God's activity in perhaps naive ways. A boxer, having just beaten someone to, the, to a pulp and laid him on the ground and knocked him out, exclaimed, God help me, beat him up. A ball player trying to break a record says, well, if the man upstairs will allow me to get the record, I'll get it. For years, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland have prayed to God that they would help them kill their enemies. The problem is, is that we want God to provide for us what we think we need. We want Him to bless what we're doing and to lead us where we want to go. But God is not our butler. He's not our maid. He's not our servant. He does not do for us what, we expect, what He expects for us to do for ourselves. He is not going to stop the universe for one of our whims. When we speak about God's assistance... And we speak about His guidance. It ought to be in the context of giving our lives over to God's service. The leading and the assistance that we seek is to enable us to fulfill our roles, our God-given roles in the world and in God's last day church. We need His assistance and His guidance to do His will. Now, I don't mean we need guidance merely just in choosing a college or a profession. More important, how shall our activities in life be opportunities to further God's cause? Whether we're an insurance agent, whether we're a banker or a clerk in a store, 
each of us needs wisdom from God about living effectively on behalf of the kingdom of God, the, 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 the role that he's given us in his kingdom, in this world, that place where we work. When we seek God's will, we should realize here too that we live by faith, not certainty. God often claimed that God, people often claim that God has spoken when they have heard nothing but their own desires. We don't expect, escape the effect of sin even when we are trying to serve God. When it comes to asserting what is the will of God, we need to exercise humility and we need to exercise caution. Even when we want God's will, it is possible for us to miss it. We may find the task of discerning God's will to be quite difficult. And usually, identifying the will of God is much easier in retrospect than it is in the process of trying to make a decision. Hindsight is uh, 2020, isn't it? We, make, we have to make some difficult decisions at times. What is God's will? How is He leading me? What does He want me to do? We're right when we seek God's provision for our needs and His leading and His assistance in our lives. It's fine to do that. We ought to do that. But we need to distinguish between our own selfish desires and our dependence upon God. All of our lives are to be lived in Him, in accordance with His purpose and on the basis of who He is. And only then there is meaning in our lives as God establishes, as according to the psalmist, Psalm 90 verse 17, as God establishes the work of our hands. Friends, we all need to become a lot wiser in the way we think about God. God is both sovereign and He is at times silent. God is silent when He allows our free will to be exercised when He allows nature and even sin to run its course, when He gives people over to their own choices, or even when we are going through an experience designed to grow us and to make us more like Christ. When we see that God is sovereign, we see that He is sovereign when we view creation, when we view other climactic events in the history of salvation, such as the Exodus, the Incarnation, the Resurrection, Pentecost. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus. We see prophecy being fulfilled, God's God's uh, view of the future is incredible. God is sovereign. We see this in all of these things. But God is sovereign also in other ways as He works in and through us and through the created order. God is sovereign and He often surprises us and moves us in ways that we did not expect. God is still in control. God is still on His throne. His purposes and, and practices and His purposes and places, all these things are being worked out according to his purpose and his will. I love what it says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 33, with regard to God's sovereignty. It says, the sovereignty of God involves fullness of blessing for all of God's created beings. That's the sovereignty of God. It's designed to be a blessing to all of God's created beings. You know, the very way we conceive of the question of how God involves himself in our world sometimes may be wrong. We separate God from ourselves and we ask whether He is sovereign or if He's not. If, if, if we take seriously the truth of being a child of God, being in Christ, we ought not separate ourselves or God from ourselves or ourselves from God. The unity of God and His people is a reality. God is sovereign for in Him we move and live and we have our being. He works in us and through us to establish in our lives and fulfill His purposes. One more Bible verse for you I'd like to read, Psalms 57. 57 verse 2. God works with His people, through His people, and He's actually fulfilling all things for His people, the accomplishment of His purpose, for the glorification of His character, for His imminent return. Psalms 57 and verse 2, our last Bible text for this morning. And He says, this is, this is the psalmist, and he says, I will cry to God most high. To God who, what, friends? Performs all things for me. Wow. God performs all things for you. God performs all things for his church, you see. The real question is not whether God is active or passive, whether God is sovereign or silent, whether God is just sovereign. The question is whether whether we are active or passive in obeying Him and obeying His Word. The ambiguities caused by the freedom given by God, the freedom of humans and the nature of sin in the world we live in results in 
often dual responses. We both praise and we protest, and both can be legitimate. While we are assured of God's goodness, we do not accept the legitimacy of evil. It is an invader into God's good creation. And prayer, not your friend, not your neighbor, but prayer is a place our concerns should be expressed most honestly. We must praise God's unsearchable ways with Paul or protest with the psalmist. Why? When things do not go the way we expected them to go. There is both reliance on God and active searching for God on our part. God is sovereign and he is silent. When people are victimized by evil, or even while they are relying on God, they have a right to protest the evil and other people who perpetrate the evil. When people are hounded by disease like cancer, even while owning death and God's peace, they don't have to like sickness and they don't have to like death. When someone is killed or dies, there is no way to tell the family that they have to accept the fact of death and that there's no place for grief. We are to grieve with them as we look toward the resurrection. People can protest, Christians can protest and, and question, but they must also know that God is identified. God is identified with this suffering world. In Christ, and although at times he seems distant, God is active in our lives, and he still brings peace to people in the midst of pain. Back to my story. Spent a year in Australia. Found my way, find my way to Canada. Back to Canada again. God opened up an opportunity for us to minister and work there. Something that would never have happened if we never went. In the midst of all of these, the experience that Jen and I went through, in the midst of all this trial, God gave me Jennifer, and an under, who had an understanding heart to wait for me until I could figure this thing out. He provided me with a family to house me in Quebec. Now, this is it's an amazing story because I used, to, I used to canvass and sell Christian literature. And I canvassed one summer with a girl who lives near Montreal, Quebec. And it was her family that I ended up staying with. God saw it all along. He saw it all along. A young man in that family needed to buy a car. And so he bought my car so I could buy a ticket to get back to Australia. It gave me an opportunity when I went back home to Australia to encourage my brother into the Lord. And he came and joined me in Canada and he gave his life to Jesus and was baptized. God opened doors to ministry that impacted many lives. And he also gave Jen and I an experience and the strength that, that, uh, and the concept and the idea that we can endure with, by God's grace, we can endure anything he brings our way. It was a tough experience. It was a difficult time. But through it all, God was hearing my prayers. God was hearing our prayers. All through it all, God was with us, leading and guiding. All through it, God was working miracles. At the moment where I felt God was the most silent, he was still sovereign God on his throne with Paul. And there's more that I could say. There's more I could say. But with Paul, I can certainly say, and I hope that you'll join me in also saying that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. If God seems silent in your life right now, remember he is still sovereign Lord. He is still God. He still cares for you. In him we live. We move. We have our being. God is near to help. God is near to save. God is near to encourage. And God is near to cheer. All things work together for good to those who love God. And those are called according to his purpose. Today, as we close the worship hour, we're going to sing hymn number 21. We're going to talk about God being the immortal God, the invisible God, and the only wise God. So join me as we sing that. It's number, hymn number 21 as our choristers come on out. Please stand for a closing hymn, hymn 21, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Yeah. 
Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are, even in those moments where you seem the most silent, hidden from all view, you are sovereign God, on your throne, caring for us, loving us, working out your great purposes and plans to fulfill the great end of the glorification of your character in the lives of your people for the end of sin, the reign of terror, and the establishment of eternal happiness and peace. Oh Lord, thank you for being our God. Thank you that you are God. And we let you and we want to let you be God in our lives. It's true that life can be complex at times. We have our questions. It's not always simple. And it's okay to come to God with our questions. It's okay to come to him with our concerns. And even though God may not explain to us everything right away, Jen and I still have questions about that whole experience still. But we could see, looking back, your unfolding of your will and your plan for us. And all along you were good. All along you had a purpose and plan in mind. All along you were growing us and trying and testing us. All along you were leading us closer to your side. All along you were seeking to lead us to glorify your name in our lives. Oh Lord, may this be our experience every day. Even though we do, do not understand everything, do not have all our questions answered. May this question be answered, that we can trust you, God. That we can trust you with our lives. Well, bless and keep us, we pray, as we seek to live, you, live for you and serve you in this day and age, in preparation for your soon return. And we pray all of this and we give you thanks in Jesus' powerful, marvelous, and mighty name. Amen. Amen.